Welcome back to the Working Audio Tools podcast with myself, Ed Thorne, and my co-host, Paul Third, the audio mixing podcast where we dive deeply into mixers, constructively critiquing mixers, whilst also interviewing top audio industry professionals. Our guest tonight runs the Beat Academy, which is a website for online courses. More about that later, because I think our audience will be very interested to hear more about that. And this person has produced, and I believe Grammy-winning, the, the likes of Gwen Stefani, Kygo, uh, various gaming soundtracks, Justin Timberlake, Kelly Rowland, uh, Skylar Gray, uh, and many, many more names. Can we introduce to the podcast Ill Factor from Miami? Hello. Hey, what's up, guys? Such a such a delight to be here. <laughs> now, for anybody that doesn't know you, Ivan, could you kind of tell the audience a little bit about uh, yourself and your journey? Just kind of a brief synopsis um, of how yeah the existential yes. crisis version, or like <laughs> like who am I? I'll like, leave it really? to you, man. I'm, Whatever floats your boat. Like the, I'm the, the still journey trying to figure that out, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, still trying to figure it out. Um, no, man. So uh, thanks, guys, for, for having me on. I've been, I'm sure, like everyone who's, you know, probably listening to this, I uh, just had a passion for music at an early age. Started off picking up an instrument, piano, trombone. That led into DJing at the latter part of my high school years. And being raised, born here in Miami, that, that DJing just had its outlet in, you know, creating and DJing electronic music. So it was very involved in the local drum and bass jungle scene. And, and that was really cool. It was bubbling over. This is right like around 1998, 99. And I started just doubling down and just having fun, just creating electronic music, was very influenced by it. And that's kind of what got me in, in my foot in the door in pro music production, learning. And that's way before YouTube. So I just kind of had to like bite down, open up a manual. I know that's kind of weird. You know, you would read the manual, figure out how this freaking drum machine works and you would, you just make it. Um, that led into, uh, just providentially, just linking up. I was working at a, a local music store, and I ran into a couple behind-the-scenes producers. I think my very first uh, production gig was with Ricky Martin, because I, I linked up with a, the producer at the time, George Noriega. And I was playing some of my music, and he was like, man, you know, uh, Madonna's music at the time was really big. So he was like, we want to we want to add some of that ticky ticky stuff. And that's how he actually said it. He was like, <laughs> we want to put some of that ticky ticky stuff in that music. Do you do that? I was like, yeah, I... I do some ticky ticky stuff if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> and then it was it was like, okay, man, here, here's the address. Show up. And I thought it was a gag, honestly, that gave me like this this address. I'm like, what? And it's like, yeah, yeah, show up to Ricky Martin's house. I'm like, okay. And I go home. I go home that night, and I'm like, mom, I, I can't have dinner. I, I got to go work with uh, Ricky Martin and his project. He's like, listen, you've come up with some pretty crazy stories, but this is the one story <laughs> I'm not letting. I'm not letting you getting out of eating dinner tonight. You need to sit down and. I'm a Cuban Puerto Rican, so my mom was like, "Oh yeah, so she was like, not letting me have it. I was like, no, for real, I gotta go. In that case, here, take this flan. Make sure he eats it all. I was like, what? <laughs> so, so yeah, I went there, and and that was really the small snowball that, that that snowballed into this amazing avalanche of just opportunities to work with so much amazing talent. So, um, so so your first your first paid production job was for Ricky Martin. That wasn't my first paid. That was like okay, my okay. first intro to the thing. Uh, okay. I would say the first, and then I then I linked up with the uh, legendary Jimmy Douglas, which with the first paint stuff started coming from providing remixes for. He was mixing. Uh, he's just a, a, a legend in, in the industry, so he was working with mixing all the Timberland and Missy Elliott stuff. And at that time, early two thousands, they moved down here to Miami. So I started just doing remix stuff for them, right? And that's that's what got my th this traction going. It's like, hey, what you know, I wasn't going to try to sell or make beat 
hip hop beats for for Tim. I was like, this is what I do, and he really liked that. So coming from that angle of producing electronic music, I said, like, hey, I'll remix stuff for you guys. And I started doing a lot of remix stuff for Jimmy Douglas and adding extra productions to his mixes. So he would be mixing and he started noticing guys coming up like Servin and all these other guys who are really just up and up with the mixing world. They were like, man, I, I just can't catch up to them. I'm coming from a, you know, I'm in transition here. I go, well, let me help. And I started remixing, adding extra productions to his mixes. And that got my foot in the door with Timberland Camp and started working from there. And the rest of history. Then, uh, then the first project I got to work on, which had produced by Ill Factor, was um, and by the way, the name came from the DJing day, so I just stayed with it. Um, you know, Ill, can I call you Ill Factor? Yeah, look, man, I just <laughs> stuck with it. That's what it is. Ivan Corley's is on the birth certificate, but yeah, that got the ball rolling to actually started working with Genuine, and then then the Matsus Yahoo project, and so my last nine of five. So I've been doing this for twenty two years. Haven't looked back. It's been quite a journey. Lots of ups and downs. Now, this kind of leads me great to my first question. Because, Ed, I do have notes this week. I've tried not to uh, waffle as much, so I do have questions. You're waffling now, week. get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how do you create originality in a playlist-curated world where everything essentially sounds the same? Because I know that's quite difficult. <sighs> but again, it's a good question. question. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a great question, and I think it's a pressure we oftentimes place on ourselves. We try to force ourselves with the burden of how original can I be? And what it does is it blurs the importance of standing on the shoulders of your inspiration. What I mean by that is when you can stand firm knowing who you're inspired by, you can look at a blank DAW and no longer treat it as I have to create something that's never been created before. You can enter into that creative state knowing, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I just need to change where that wheel is headed. So if I'm listening to Metallica this week, or if I'm listening to you know, a Skrillex record, and I'm just like in the mood that I'm in, I can remove that burden of pressure of trying to be original and just say, man, like this is, what, this is what's moving me right now, and just get lost with that. And oftentimes, when you're forcing yourself to be original, you're finding yourself in a, in a, in a very cookie cutter framework. But when you're inspired by things that are already out there, you originally interpret them in a brand new way that hasn't been done. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. You step into more original, you step into more of who you are authentically when you borrow from who you are being inspired by. And I think sometimes we've placed this huge burden on ourselves to think like, okay, okay, I, you know, I love Deep Purple, I love Molly, I, whatever, whatever influence you have, you're like, okay, but now I've got to create something that's never been heard before. Like, good luck with that. Like, what? We're all, we're all painting with the same colors. We've all got the same chords. We've gotten, we know the progressions. Now it's, how are you interpreting the world that you're inspired by? That's what people want to connect with. Think of that question in, in itself. A curated playlist, a group of songs someone is putting together to invoke a mood, right? So even the playlist of borrowed of other borrowed songs and and performances is already bracketed or placed in a in a format that's to invoke a mood. And I, that's how we should be approaching our work too. It's like, all right, what am I jamming with? Let me put all this in. And now this is invoking a mood. And now I'm going to let that out into my DAW and hit the ground running. And will it be great? I don't know. But let's just let's give it a whirl and see what happens. Would you say that there is less originality? compared to say past decades i mean i don't know again sometimes i think i blame it on like this whole playlist 
kind of culture. But a lot of the times when I listen to uh, the charts now, I sometimes sit there and think, that sounds the same, especially in certain genres now. I know like um, a lot of the beat world, uh, things just sound very similar. Yeah. And then especially in the Latin world, again, reggaeton became yeah. so popular. Now everything's got a fucking reg- reggaeton beat. To oh, it listen, don't, I mean, being based in Miami, don't even get me started, man. It's like, <laughs> hey... Okay, so I'm sorry. I think I misunderstood the last question. I think the the answer, the way I was answering that last question was how to tap into an original, how to, how to be more secure in your original creative state or thought, right? I see what you're saying now. It's like, okay, in a cookie cutter world where the end product that we're seeing on charts, on radios, where it's all same, I think that's what's done a lot of damage, especially even the, the way the record label industry. So for instance, like I remember sitting in meetings and I would have record executives tell me, you see, you see this chart? You see the song, Gangnam Style? That's what's hot right now. You, yeah. We need another one of those. And I'm like, okay. So they're chasing after the, the results that that music is gaining, not the actual music itself. Because then when you hand over these A&Rs, the same, okay, is that what you want? Then here, here's a whole bucket full of that. It's like, oh, but it's not having the same impact. I know it's not having the same impact because it's not that same freaking song. But because then, you're 18 months late by the time that song's out. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, exactly. And so it's this weird cycle that's happening where people are hearing the charts and they're like, that's what's hot right now, so let me go mirror that. And so there's influence and then there's inspiration, right? So there's the artists that you're, you're influenced by. Those are the ones that have moved you towards even wanting to create. And then you can be inspired by something like, oh, I went for a walk and I heard this thing and I want to incorporate that. I think those are two different means. In a world where everything seems to be the same, I also don't want to be bumper sticker, foo-foo, cliche. Just be yourself. Like, what the crap does that mean nowadays? Like, just be yourself. It's like, I, I, I'll tell you what. If you can remove the pressure and burden of your music expecting to achieve something, you will be much happier with the results of your, the music you're creating. And that's what answers that question. Because if we had a world of people, of artists, that are just making the music that they're resonating with and it's resonating with other people, then check mark, right? It did what they were supposed to do. I, I had a creative vision. I put it down. I let it out in the world. People are resonating with it. Voila. Does it sound like that next record? Okay, cool. But when you go about it like, that's what's hot. Let me chase that. Let me recreate that because that's what's hot right now. It's just, it's just people are just smelling it miles away. It's like, uh, I don't want it. And is that yeah, the label's so. fault? Is that purely just pressure from the label's sitting there going, this this is hot right now. This is what's working. Right, okay, this is what we're going to do. Because it's almost like, I noticed that Tate McRae is like on this massive ascendancy now. She is just like the hottest thing in music right now. And then I'm now sitting there thinking, is now every girl, every artist, female artist, and is all these songs going to now be like Tate McRae? Tate McRae, we now want to sound like Tate, Tate McRae. I mean, has it always been like this in, in your experience? That- I think it, I mean... <laughs> Well, we're only two years out of every every young girl, female artist wanting to be Olivia Rodrigo and creating kind yeah, of punky true. pop songs again. Yeah, true. And that, there was an influx of artists that followed her, just as that you know, I guess there were Taylor Swift, but yeah, um, there'll be there'll be an influx of artists following uh, Dua Lipa maybe, and Becky yeah. Hill are probably the other big examples of artists who pioneered a sound. And then there was a just you know there was all the the le- the record label secondary signings coming up behind them and all the artists who got signed so other labels couldn't sign them and launch them as a competitive artist. Yeah. Which is a big thing. It's crazy because the, the Dua Lipas, the Miley Cyruses, the Olivia Rodrigo's, those are the ones we see because that's 
that's what the, the, the machines, that's what they're pumping out into the world. But they're yeah. just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other artists that are really just having fun with the art making of, of you know, creating music and the craft. And so um, I think it's always been that way, Paul, these cycles. I mean, look, I guess when Beethoven played in front of some magistrates, they were like, we want, can you play something like Chopin or whatever? Yeah, I, yeah, I might get the point. timelines crossed here, but you get what I'm saying, right? There's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's been a, a, a human desired cycle in the music from the beginning. It's like, oh, this guy's influenced that. We want more of that kind of music. And so there's always that cycle. Beatles, Beach Boys, they, you know, it's always like this thing, this cycle of like, um, so yeah, and Tate McRae would be the hot thing. And then five years, there's going to be another hot thing. And then there's always going to be a hot thing. So you're asking like, is it the label's fault? I don't, I, I don't know the exact pinpointed answer to that. I just now know that we are in a, in a really crazy, wild, amazing era with music in general. I think it's half and half. I think a big part of it's the consumption. How are we consuming the media format? Yeah. Big difference. So remember, I don't know if you remember, I'm, I'm going to date myself here, but I remember going to the store, buying a CD, buying an LP, buying an album, sitting down, having a group of my friends. We just put play and like, whoa, zone out. There was a, an experience to walk, uh, walking through that, that the way we consume music. But now it's like you're flicking through whatever is a TikTok session. Some kid just burnt, you know, light his eyebrows on fire and they just happen to use your song behind it. And, and so it's, it's stapled with an entertainment consumption. And how difficult right. has that been just, for you as a producer in this new world? Because I, I watched an interview with Ryan Tedder and it was, I couldn't believe it. Like one of the best songwriters of my generation sitting there going, you know, I could have a hit, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually going to get accepted by the labels because it's TikTok. Like for a, for a producer like you with so much experience, is how is that whole kind of social media TikTok generation, how has that impacted lots of modern producers? It's done two things, right? I think with every rise of new technology, there is the, there tends to be that golden space where like, wow, this is a really cool wave you can ride. There's a new and gateway, there's, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a new gateway, it's a new approach and, you know, new. so I, I would never ever be, um, uh, you know, I would never be far from embracing change. Although for me personally, change is hard, but I would also then realize that that does a lot of disrupting too. So. The TikTok, the quick consumption, the attention span has the, the the effect it's had is like, all right, if I'm not getting the real quick instant gratification, now, you know, people, your, your music's got a hit from the very first five seconds. I'm like, okay, whoa. So what are, what are we doing, right? And so people who are like, I need to now be, I need to market my music well. I need to figure out TikTok. I need to decode these things. And, and again, that's where those hidden burdens and pressures are being placed by a lot of artists. So uh, when you start to step away from that and you get your 30,000 foot view and you realize, okay, what would it look like if I was just writing something that I really am emotionally invested in and just write and create? And then if it fits the narrative of the 30 second, 10 second consumption thing, whatever, but that's not gonna validate or the amount of likes or the amount of, retweets isn't going to validate the art that I'm making. And so I think with a lot of artists that I develop and work with, there's a, there's a period of unlearning or untangling with the artists seeing their value based on how many retweets, reposts, re, you know, things like that. So I think it's a both end. You, you're going to have to use the necessary means of getting you, yourself out there, social media. I think that's great. 
But I think we have to be weary with where we're placing the identity of who we are as an artist. Uh, if you're really convicted with the art that you're making, I think it's going to resonate no matter what platform you're doing because your, your, your why isn't focused on how many TikTok dances can I do with this? I hope that makes sense. I don't know. How much mixing do you do and how much influence on the mix do you have as a producer? That's a great question. That is such a great question because in the dynamic of working in the major record label world, I would produce a record, I, I would start on the beat, work on the instrumental, work with the artist, work with the songwriter, uh, have the whole synergy of creating the ultimate vision, hand that over to, I was working in tandem with Jimmy Douglas a lot. So it would be here, here are the stems, mix it, get it to there. And we've built that trust and, and other amazing, talented uh, mixing engineers. And then they would do their thing and they would go to the label because that was the systematic approach that the label wanted for it to authentically feel like it's gone through the process, right? The mixing engineer went through it, then we sent it to someone to master and bam, I was like, okay. So when I started working a lot with independent artists that just didn't have that framework to work with, they were like, okay, so go ahead, here's a song, go get it, go get it mixed. And they're like, but don't you do that too? I was like, oh yeah, I guess I could. Yeah, well, here, let me, let me, let me flush out because a lot of a lot of eighty percent of mixing's done with the right ingredients, right? You guys are talented mixers, and you know that when you get a sloppy mix, one of the first things you're going to do is like, bro, you're better off just re-recording that kick, re-recording that snare, and, and instead of me trying to polish a piece of poop, right? It's just like here. So if I can get, I I picked out the ingredients myself in the production, and then. I'm already doing about 70% of the heavy lifting there and I just get the balance in. I'm, so I'm, I'm tracking, producing, mixing, all in Ableton Live. Like I'm actually in the studio here. I'll track my vocals. I did it about like five years ago as a test. Could I leave Pro Tools? Because I would used to produce in Ableton, bounce out, put in Pro Tools, and then track vocals in Pro Tools. But I was like, oh, let me try if I can just do it all in one, you know, in, in Ableton, tracking vocals. It's like, all right. Got it. And now I've never looked back because my workflow for producing was so fast that it, it articulated and also the way I, my workflow with tracking vocals, uh, vocal comping, and then mixing. So the workflow of how I create also overflowed and carried into how I mix and then even just doing some, some mastering. So yeah, I'm, I'm primarily mixing. Anything that I'm doing, me personally, I'm mixing and mastering myself. A lot of the, I would say 90% of the independent artists that I'm working with. I mix, the track I actually did that, that won a Grammy a couple months ago in the Latin Grammys, I mixed and mastered myself. So, so I'm doing a lot more of that whole like all on the one umbrella. So when you send your tracks off to uh, a mix engineer, now I'm guessing you're, from what you've said, fortunate to work with the best in the industry. If you don't have the opportunity to work for the best in the industry with a certain project, what do you look for in a mix engineer, and why do you go to the guys you go to? A biggest thing is relationally, right? It's all based on a relationship. You, we love working with people we really get along to with. What a great concept, right? Like work with people you love working with. Uh, so that's uh, that's so important because um, a there there's a there's a beautiful musicality. I, I I you know I was mentored by Jimmy. We spent so much time. He gets me. I get him. And so there's just this understanding of even on a sonic level. Like, I love the way he manages his low end. And I, you know, and I'm a Neve fanatic because of him, right? And maybe it's all on my mind, maybe it's, a, but I've gotten accustomed to that. 
And so when I look with other engineers, um, you know, loved working with Fab from um, Dupont and all these other guys. When 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 I link arms with them, it's really just relationally based. It's like, hey man, like, what's on your mind, right? And so from there, because every it's it's unique to the project as well. Um, the group Moncia Perene that I worked with, Fab has done mixing for them, so he he actually knows a lot more. He has a better rapport with them than I do as a producer because he's worked with them on several tracks and projects. So I'm like, bro, you you understand them better. Why don't you take care of mixing this project than, than I do? Um, so, But my decision behind having that person mix it is because of the relationship they have with the artists. I think that's such a big component for me personally. Like, If the mixing engineer has a really good relationship with an artist that I'm producing for, that, triangle, that triangular thing is so important So because there's trust mm. there. And yeah. believe it or not, if that trust is there, you're getting less recalls. You're getting less like just headaches all around. And so why not just go to that? Yeah, you've nailed on something I've experienced, which is trust by uh, familiarity. And yeah, the, the people who you do have those phone calls with, uh, rather than just replying to an email, if you get an inquiry, ring them. Give, give it that personal touch and yeah. get that personal contact with someone and they will trust you. Whereas I've been in, I've been in a mixed chat with people in the States who I don't know and don't know me. And they've instantly got loads of feedback and don't trust that I know what I'm doing, which is fair enough because I don't trust what they're doing because we don't know each other. So yeah, you, you, you touch on an interesting point though with the, the trust by familiarity thing. Yeah, yeah. I think if, if I trust you to, to know where I'm headed sonically, and I, I, and that, but that trust is such a great point, Ed, because that trust isn't just like, I know he's gonna do a good job. It's I think it's deeper than that. It's just like I just I just trust that person's ears musically, and mm. and that's what I'm doing in faith. I'm saying, hey man, you know who I am as as a, as an artist and, and a producer. Just go with it because I trust your musical and I respect your musical input when you mix. Uh, and so like, and then he'll they'll give me the mix. It's like, what do you think? And it's a conversation and not an argument. No, I suppose the 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 question now has to be. And you don't have to name names, but uh, how do you deal with ego, egotistical mix engineers? Maybe some difficult uh, artists, you know, kind of when you have to deliver <coughs> singers. <laughs> I know you hate. Sorry, I know you're always talking about singers. But yeah, how do you deal with that as a producer when you know that there may, might be certain things that you're like, mm, I don't think that's like the best decision, or maybe you've produced oh, something man. and the mixers, you've kind of been like, oh my god. <laughs> The mixers ruined what we had. Like, how do you deal with that? Oh, man. Okay, you ready for names? Because let's go. Let's go through the whole list. Quality, no, I'm kidding. Let's <laughs> <laughs> Got excited then for a second. <laughs> Put them on blast. Um, dude, Live there, stream? Click. There, there have been some crazy stories. I mean, I think dealing with humans in general is just, <laughs> I, I, that's just it, right? Like, we are... We're and, and then and then throw into the mix where you're you're dealing with artists, you're dealing with producers and creatives, and so there's that other layer of just. Um, I think it really comes down to un, unspoken expectations, and and a lot of times there's just miscommunication and expectation. But but I have no control. Anybody that steps into the room and that I'm working with, uh, the most I can do is just model the way. I would want to be treated. I know it's so simple, but I just, I, I, I got to start with modeling it first. Um, I don't do it perfectly and I need to grow in that area as well. But 
essentially just allowing when I do come across just where there's a strong conviction from an artist. That's the thing. A lot of artists that I've worked with, some just are very bold in their conviction. Nope, this is how I want it. And I don't want it any other way. And I'm like, yeah, but working together allows my input to come here too. You're not just leading the charge. Yeah, but this is how I want it. So I'm like, okay. So I almost feel like I've had to get a master's degree in psychology just to learn how to deal with people. Everyone says that. Right, because at the beginning of my career, I was very much, okay, yeah, sure, whatever, let it happen. Um, And I know doing that actually did a disservice as well. So there's two extremes. You can just say, okay, whatever, man, just run it. But you're not doing yourself and that artist a service as well. Because an artist can grow so much with the challenge of somebody else in the room saying, hey, I want to I want to push back on that. I want to challenge you on that decision. And so it's very simple. When I come across that kind of ego, I actually start with the question, why? I just ask them, so wh- why, why do you feel so strongly about that? And we just sit there and have a conversation. And they're like, well, because that I go, okay, well, why do you feel that way about that? I go Jordan Peterson on him. I'm like, but well, why do you feel that way? You know, like I go crazy on him like that. But the, the, but then the reality starts to become like, I'm I wanna I wanna I wanna let them feel like they're being heard instead of me just shutting it down completely and being like, all right, man, like at least I understand where you're coming from. And so even when it comes down to a mix, I was like, well, cool, man. Like, why why did you make those decisions with the mix? I'm just curious. I'm just asking why. Well, I thought you know it needed a lot more low end, or I thought. I could bring the transients up. I thought it could use an extra punch. Oh, okay, cool. Um, I wanted the record to be a lot more softer. That's why I had it the way I, I had it. And I could see why you would want more punch from it. You, you see what I'm doing? It's, it, again, it's just coming back to that kind of dialogue, but man, I don't know. Sometimes it, it just, <laughs> there could be days where I'm like, all right, I am not even gonna ask why. I'm like, why did I even get myself into this? That's the why I'm starting asking. So, <laughs> but- <laughs> But yeah, I think it's more important that they felt heard than just an immediate knee-jerk reaction. It was like, no, it's gotta be like this. So there's an art to that. There's, and, and I think the mature producers, uh, I, those are signs of maturity in this industry, is we can, when you have people who not necessarily um, get their way, but can, it can help the artist or the person they're working with get the best out of them and, and, and cast that vision for what they have for them, right? So they can see the best, they can see the potential they can rise to and being able to get that out of them. That's, that's, that's hard, but that's the maturity level of someone who's seasoned and done this for a while. What I always find interesting is every time we have industry professionals on like yourself, the amount of psychology <laughs> that's involved is crazy. It's like you have to learn so much like psychology and I'll, one thing many people say to me is again I have a lot of people that look out for me um, in the industry and stuff and a lot of mixers and producers and they all say Paul I love you man but just don't burn bridges because my biggest fear with you is that you burn bridges and I've heard of many stories about many people burning bridges and they've burned bridges themselves but you know how hard is it when you're first starting out to learn all that psychology like how long did it take you till you were like I know I like this. there'll be some days you're like, oh my God, like this is just like, who am I dealing with right now? But like, how long did it take you till you kind of felt after what I've... After, after you've burnt your 100th bridge? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like after you've burnt enough bridges where you find yourself on an island, then you realize I need to stop doing it. 
And I think that was it for me. Like I, 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 I look brought up in Miami working in, in, even in the hip hop scene here, it was very cutthroat. I mean, the first couple of projects I did, I was told like, this is how we work around here. I give you 50 bucks. You give me all the tracks that you were working wow. on. I'm like, Oh, Oh, so at the very beginning, the, the DNA of how to make it in this industry was treat people like projects or stepping ladders to get to where you want to go. And, you know, you, you, need, you need to have a new worldview. That, that paradigm has to shift or else you're going to do nothing but burn bridges. And so when you've done that enough times, you come to pause and say, like, why is this becoming so hard for me? Why are more doors closing? Why are less opening? And it's just because I've been treating people like projects and not like people. And when you've been, and the thing is, it's like, there's an old saying that hurt people hurt people. You know, when, when you get burnt enough times, you feel like, well, I'm going to do it to everybody else. Cause you know what? Pay your dues. I've gone through it, but it doesn't have to happen that way. You know, you can end that cycle. And so I've been blessed enough to have that worldview of mine change. Um, and just had some really good people that I loved and trust around me to help snap me out of that and model it for me. It's like, hey, bro, I don't care how much you were hurt. That's not how I'm going to treat you. And I'm like, whoa, that's freshing. That's, that's really rejuvenating. So yeah, it is a lot of psychology. And I think the best way you get out of it, because I don't want to put a time frame around it. For some people, they might get that lesson really quick because the one bridge, the one bridge they burnt was a really big one. You know, For some people, they might repeat that same mistake for 10 years straight. I don't know. So I think the most healthy thing is you start to see that, um, and I hope people listening would which is really grab a hold of this and really like, okay, like I don't have to burn the bridge. So yeah, um, identifying that, you know, once, once I've done that way too many times, I realized the significance of just being able to treat people like people, get to the root of like why they think in the way they think and just, and let them be heard. Now, it was interesting that you talked about Jimmy because I, I love that. I remember I watched the Pensado's Place episode about Jimmy and me and Ed have this thing where we genuinely believe that like the spikes and the serbins and all these big engineers, there's things that they're not telling us. But then you get people like Jimmy that's just like, yeah, man, it's just EQ, just on the board, just like simple stuff, EQ and on the board. Um, but I think what's interesting when you mentioned about serbin there was what was it that the what was it that the, the serbins and stuff, what was it they were doing different to challenge like guys like Jimmy that had been in the industry for so long? What was it that they were doing different? That's a great question. And man, the, you just you just touched on something really important I want to get back to about, about that simplicity um, and how it just turns so many things on their head. Mm -hmm. I think a big part was workflow, right? Uh, there was a, now, a guy like Jimmy and, and many of the guys, veterans like the Chris Lord Algies and the guys in the space that have been, I mean, they, they've, they've moved from a bracket of time a guy like Jimmy, who's been under the wings of Tom Dowd, and if you guys want to geek out on some engineering stuff, Tom Dowd, part of the Manhattan Project. I mean, that it gets deep, crazy stuff, right? And Jeff Emmerich, who did all the, the some of the Beatles stuff. Jimmy lived through, and, and, and those guys, they've gone through like recording Aretha Franklin from the console to the tape. Recording, you know, they saw the birth of digital, you know, from, from tape to ADAT, from mm -hmm. ADAT to Pro Tools. So they're seeing this progression with technology. The thing is, it was now starting to catch up and change so rapidly. But by the time the servants started coming out and, and, and many others, they were just, they were being born into this world and they were adapting to the technology so much quicker. So short key commands, workflows, structures, mm -hmm. being able to, to print, duplicate. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So Jimmy's like, man, I, I, 
it's a new grammar I have to learn, all this stuff. And I was like, and I was a young kid in the corner. I was like, oh, I know. This is how I, I, I think, right? So that's what it was. It was just like the output. That was the biggest thing. How can these guys mix all in the box? Because Jimmy was all VR, right? We mm-hmm. were mixing on the Neve. We were still doing the console. And then we started realizing who gives a crap. Everybody just wants a two-track. Nobody on the other side of the laptop cares anymore. Oh, great. Now it's ended up on TikTok. Why do I even bother? It, it, see, the culture was changing. The way music was being consumed was changing. So the quality of the craft was also changing. And so people left and right were... Oh, I can, I can, I can deliver a mix in 24 hours. I can, de- I can deliver a mix in three hours. I can deliver a mix in five minutes. What the, what's going on here? That's what was going on. And I think that, that was what we got. Um, we kind of felt the same when, um, Ed, what, how many mixes did, uh, did Jason say that he was working on? Was it sometimes three a day? Jason said he was knocking out when we were at Abbey Road. Three to, three to five, yeah. And how could yeah. you, how could you, how could you knock out three to five? I suppose a lot of it is about, again, his workflow. He was talking about, his template, it goes in at this, it goes into that, the drums going at this, it goes in, it hits the shadow hills at this. It's all about it's all about workflow. But yeah. Yeah, it's just and if, I mean, and if you're mixing, if you're oh, I'm so sorry to cut you off. No, if you're okay. also mixing like I'm doing hip hop this whole week, right? And if you're pumping it through like my 808s are here, my 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 kick drums, like you dial it in. Jimmy was also getting, you know, like a blood orange project. He would get this kind of project, he would get a foreigner type project. So it wasn't like a every every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're getting, you know, 18 trap records to mix, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. Yeah, because if you're in the same genre, again, you could kind of work off a, set, a kind of rough template that's going to work. You can hit your kicks the same way. Basically, yeah. <laughs> put, the, put the L2 on every track and call it a day <laughs> and then just send it off to somebody. <laughs> Distro Kids sponsors the Working Audio Tools podcast and 30% off your first year subscription can be found in the podcast show notes and the YouTube video description. Hyperfollow is the easiest way to place all of your content in one single place, making finding all of your content super easy for your audience. Upload artwork for your release, edit the information, and apply links to all of the streaming platforms your music is going to be available, which of course on DistroKid is potentially all of them that exist now and even in the future. Add social media buttons so your audience can find you and your latest music video. Creating a beautiful landing page with a preview of your music is easy with Hyperfollow. Hyperfollow links can be created for all of your releases and it enables you to create pre-save links for your audience to pre-order your music before it's released. This link is shareable on all of your platforms and a great way to promote your next release only with DistroKid. A thing that I noticed and worked really well for you um, on YouTube was when you were basically trying to like how to recreate um, certain songs and I think you did a great job on so many of them and I find it interesting that you could kind of listen to a song but you have the experience and the skills and the technology to be able to go right okay that's probably going to be a bit of that bit of that bit of that and you're able to re- recreate it due to your experience being in the industry for so long the 80s had a sound the 90s had a sound the noughties had a sound if you were to generalize the sound of this generation compared to say 80s, 90s, noughties, would you say this generation does have a, a kind of a certain sound? Just for anybody that's new to producing, anybody that's new to music, and you, if you want to make it in this game, this is kind of the sound. So obviously 80s, again, big massive snares and 
more reverb than you could ever wish. Oh, okay. No, I'm so sorry, man, but it was the accent. I was like, it has a, a send, like an auxiliary <laughs> send. I was like, oh no. I'm so sorry, man. I, I didn't mean, but I was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. The 80s have an auxiliary send. And then, like, um, we were getting deep there. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. Every, every journey, I think there is a sound. I think in the 80s, there was a sound, but I don't know how much of like, the people creating the records, there was so much in it that they were aware. You know, there's there's like this thing of the awareness that we have, you know, like the, the third wall kind of thing. And, you know, yeah, I think a lot of the the commonalities comes down to even how we mentioned how music's being consumed. I think the, the ability of being able to create music has also changed the game and has actually changed the sound. It's a hallmark of the access and the ability to create it. If, let, let's look back. The 80s, we have the introduction to what? Digital reverbs that just started to come into play. Certain plates that were being discontinued from the 70s, um, which had a lot of dry drum sounds and stuff. And then the 80s were in, wow, digital reverb, gated reverbs, big halls, big stadium type stuff. Because the technology was kind of shifting that. 90s, you're starting to get in, okay, sampling, right? It's starting to become really much bigger, especially in the hip hop genre. Resampling things, cutting them up, chopping them, the MPCs and the way that sound was. And then you start getting into dance, right? Electronic music was being created and all that was just overflowing. So I think technology has always kind of paved the way of kind of what the sound ears to. And so the fact that someone, you know, a 14 or younger year old kid can just grab their, their iPhone and start making beats kind of starts, it starts to give its way to the sound. And I think the sound mm -hmm. is very much kind of like this generation of like this constant, you know, it, it, oh, it's just this vibe. Right, it's all about this vibe. So you hear a lot of, especially I notice it on a lot of like the trap and hip hop. You'll have like a lot of halftime pitched flutes, halftime pitched pads, and keys that are just pitched halftime, and there's a beat on top of it. And it, you know, and I think the guy's like reading the nutrition facts off of a cereal box or something. And then, but it's all about like just the vibe, right? Nobody's yeah. like, what is he saying? Who cares? It's just the vibe. I think this, what's, it's so weird, it's counterintuitive, but the sound right now is the sound of everything. I'm right, not trying okay. to sound extra guru, because it, it's just like so blended. It sounds very dry, I think. Would you say that it's like, Yeah, I think it's every decade that it seems to be the music's got drier. Again, if you go from 80s, then 90s, it just seemed like, I remember when me and Ed first started out doing the mix comparisons. Ed was like, Paul, I was like, you're, I used to, I do, I, I'm a big reverb guy and I've learned to tone it down a lot over time. Because Ed was like to me, he's like, Paul, listen to like modern records. They're way dry. Drums are drier. Like, would, have you noticed yeah. that as well? That shift to like, it is like to the point where it's, it's so programmed now where it's just, everything's just very dry and it's like uh, almost like effects are for the vocal or it's like for an effect. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, okay. Man, I, I okay, I, takes me like two questions in to finally answer the two questions back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I apologize for that, but that's good. Okay. So look at it like this. YouTube has given so much access to the instant gratification of how do I do this? How can I get this done? So now you're starting to see, so it's weighing more on the production techniques and the production chops, like vocal chops and all these cool little things now. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the ear candy stuff is I think the sound of today, like yeah. all the little, the granular little, things that can be added that add this atmosphere and paint the environment musically, I think that's kind of at the center. So a lot of people come like, oh, how do I do these cool, intricate things? 
as opposed to now focusing on, well, how do I write really good songs? Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. I agree. Right? So we've gotten lost in the technicality of, oh, but how do I get that snare to sound that way? Well, just freaking sample it. I don't know. We'll go on Splice <laughs> and find it. So, yeah. And so there is the Tame Impala vibe sound. You have like this indie pop type stuff, like 1975. It's funny, like 1975 is bringing 80s back. That's, yeah, that's what totally. I'm saying. We're like, we're seeing technology allowing creatives to just get blurred and lost in this. This is what I've... This is what I grew up listening to, and that's the kind of music I want to create. And now the tools are allowing the layman person to do that. It's not, it's not, it's not saved for the people who had ownership of the big studios anymore. Where it's like anybody, yeah, hey, man, I really love listening to the theme song to this TV show I grew up on. That's kind of the music I'm going to make on my mobile phone. I don't know if I even answered your freaking. No, question. you have. I no, guess honestly, the answer is you have. The, the quick answer really is have. yes. I guess dry wet. <laughs> No, it's parallel. It's parallel. It's half dry, half wet. <laughs> this parallel. Hey there, Ed here. You may recognise my voice from doing all the other Distro Kid advert segments. This time, I didn't want to just do a typical advert talking about stuff to do with Distro Kid. I actually wanted to give you my feedback about the service because I genuinely do use Distro Kid for uploading my music, and I know Paul does. And it turns out Dan Worrell does as well. I've used DistroKid since 2019. As you can see on the screen, I have six releases so far. It is genuinely super easy to use. The tracks get into Spotify within 24 hours, which is remarkable. Apple Music takes a little bit longer. I'd suggest giving that 10 to 14 days. The hyperfollow links are really useful for advanced promotion of your tracks. And the promo cards are really great visual aids for social media promotion. Ooh, I particularly like that one. DistroKid collect all the royalties from your streaming services. And here you can find an itemized breakdown of where all your income has come from. There's also a DistroKid referral where you can save your friends $10 per sign-up by creating your own VIP referral link. With that kind of change in technology and with obviously there being a blend of everything and everybody seems to be able to can just pick up from YouTube now. And I do think YouTube has a lot... Um, a bla- is it, YouTube's a blame for quite a lot of things, um, a lot of good things, but a lot of bad things. Um, how do you feel that kind of this ad- adaptation of technology and the amount of resources that are on YouTube, sometimes not the best information, but so much information out there, has that changed the role of what a producer was? Because it seems to me that, like, for me growing up, you, you had your, your what I class as your proper producers, and you had like your Quincy Jones and you know, you had all these kind of... A producer was a big name, but it seems to be like now it's like, yeah, man, like, I'm a producer. I can make beats and sell them on YouTube. And now I'm a, I'm a producer now, man. Like, do you think that there has been a, yeah. neg- a negative side of, like, you know, all this, you know, uh, change? It's been a shift. And do you think that's kind of changed, like, how a producer is viewed in, say, 2024? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, Paul, kudos, bro. I thought that that voice, the, your producer voice is spot on, man. <laughs> If if this whole thing falls apart, you, that's your that's your voice acting gig right there. Respect. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I know there's 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 a lot of people on one side of the fence that says um, shame on the people who call themselves producers now that are just making four bar loops and eight bar beats. Right. I, I don't look at it that way. I think it's very genre, very genre centric in the mm-hmm. sense of someone making hip hop beats can't be in a room with a country artist and just hand them a two track eight bar loop. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they can, right? But it takes it takes a skilled producer 
to be able to bring out of that circumstance and that situation a great song yeah, that'll work totally. and resonate with that artist. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the producer's skill enough, say here's an eight bar vibe, here's an eight bar loop, and he's able to work synergy, you know, synergy wise with that artist, and they come up with something great, that's that's what the producer should do. But if the guy's saying, well, here's this eight bar loop, I don't know how I don't know how to here you just go in another room and write a song, then that person's just a good old beat programmer, right? And so that's why I kind of don't want to stick to just a black and white answer to that, because I really believe it's the access of tools, even the ability to get access to information has given people the ability to express what they're talented and gifted in. It could be just straight up like beat programming, bass lines, maybe just making a whole beat. But then maybe they can start learning and growing into, if I really want the best result out of this circumstance, I'm going to have to pull more than, I'm going to have to do more than just hand somebody a, yeah. an MP3 file. And those who do that and realize that grow and develop and blossom into something amazing, those that don't stay there. And that even leads to AI. That even leads to this whole surgence of AI, right? So th- I like to look at it. It's not that AI is going to replace the producer. I think it's the producers that embrace AI and utilize the tools. Correct. They're the yeah. ones that step into this brave new world and adapt yeah. well. So instead of being like, ah, this AI is going to take, no, bro, learn it, use it. And if you need to cut a vocal as a demo to pitch for a girl and you got this AI that does it for you, that's what I'm saying. It's like producer plus the AI plus this thing. Like put it in your utility belt and become Batman. Yeah. Like go and kick butt. Have you got any AI tools that you've come across that you're using or considering diving into? I, I, I like the STEM stuff that breaks down. I, X, I know it's not technically AI, but I, I, it, I would put it in there. I think it's the... The stuff that XL and Audio is doing with, um, with like XO, the drum uh, map, they map out all your drum samples, map out all the samples, and it just categorizes by, by sound and color. And I love that because it just takes me out of the whole, go to the same folder, go to the same thing, go to the same browser. And so I can just explore, get inspired by something and go that way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really digging a lot of these like not the famous, like the weekend model voices, but these cool AI engines that allow you to upload a vocal riff that you've done and it just replicate, it'll perform it back in another voice. Um, I think those are pretty cool. Uh, the AI stuff that's like, make me a, you know, make me a tropical house beat, but make it polka. I'm like, what the, okay, that's just, any AI tools that are be- based on generative I think are all right. Like there's a there's a synth GPT tool. Like if you type in, I'm looking for like a fat baseline. I think that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. It'll it'll put that and categorize and create uh, spit out a sample like that. But the AI tools that assist, I think, are really cool. Like Isotope's got some stuff, right? I think the assisting tools are great. But again, you do have to be familiar with the grammar so that you know how to utilize them well, mm-hmm. and then uh, that's how you make the, the best use of it. So when you're producing. How much in mind are you keeping an eye on the mix process? I'll give you an example. I had a track come through by a, from a producer and everything was just mono. Mm. You know, it was a stereo keyboard file, but it had all been played in the, you know, just around middle, middle C in the middle register. The synths were just a duplicate of the pads of that. The bass was the root note, just, you know, all mono down the middle. Wow. And the only way I could get any stereo image out of it was creating movement with you know Paul's famous autopan trick that I stole off him and <laughs> use all the time um, and backing vocals 
And I sent it to a mastering engineer who said, yeah, you need to work on the stereo width. And he gave me a screenshot of the um, ozone Im- stereo imager thing. And I was like, dude, that's all I was given. Like, that you're lucky it's even as wide as that. How much are you considering the mix when you're producing? I think, especially a lot of the things that I'm personally mixing, um, I have the unfair advantage of choosing the ingredients that I'm using to cook. Yeah, that's that, a good point. That's, yeah. Right? So a lot, of, a lot of mixing engineers don't get to choose the ingredients. They're left with mono leftover pizza from five years ago. And that's where, <laughs> and so, and you're like, crap. So I, there's a balance. So for those of you, so when you get into producing, and I'm, I'm talking, and this could be, you know, DAW less or in all in a doll, no matter what doll you're using. Um, there's this balance between capturing the original vibe, especially when I'm with the artist here in the studio, in the room, or with a songwriter. I want to make sure that I don't just put placeholder sounds and say, okay, I'm going to replace this later on, because that that used to be a big mistake I would make. I would be like, ooh, okay, we got a cool vibe. And if I did that, that if I have to do that, it means those aren't the right sounds to begin with. And and what if I'm forcing myself to even be inspired to write based off of those sounds. So to give you a grand example, mixing from a producer standpoint is finding a drum loop, finding a kick. I was like, oh yeah, that's dope. And I start to craft around that. And I use the compass. I navigate through my decision-making by, yeah, this is a really cool vibe. This is, this is making me feel, and this is, if, if I know the artist behind me is like bobbing their head and like, oh, this is really cool. It ain't broke. I don't need to fix it. And now my decision-making process from that moment, let's say it's just a, 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 a drum loop, some chords on a VST instrument and, and a bass line. But that enough are the ingredients to get us motivated to come up with a, a melody for a chorus or a verse. Every precision, every production decision I make from that has to support those three pillars. So why am I putting that pad? Oh, kicks, because I want more width. So I put that sound in there for those decisions so that when Ed goes to mix it, he has a sonic playground to play with. I think I don't think formulaic in the sense, okay, well, I got to put the snare because I'm, I'm going to be mixing it later. So I need to put an EQ. I don't need to put an EQ on every channel and cut everything between six, low 60 hertz. Like that's, that's tech talk that, that, you know, that's, that's making decisions by my eyes. So if, if I'm, if I'm putting sounds together, I'm like, well, oh, that, that works really well. Those two sounds. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you know, I don't have the artist looking at me and say, yeah, but you didn't put an EQ and you're not using the fab filter and you're not cutting away five hours. Like, okay, I don't need to, it, it works well. So that's, that's what I'm saying. So I, I, what I do mostly is here's the number one thing that has helped me tremendously with mixing, produ- mixing or producing for mixing. It's my volume knob on my freaking audio interface. What do I mean by that? Is I actually don't slap any God particle or any like TRS-1 or anything like that or any, any crazy limiter on my master bus. I just freaking crank up the volume on my freaking audio interface. I have an environment where I can bump it or put on headphones and get really loud. And I get lost in, in that. Um, and I just make sure that the, I keep my headroom good. Headroom's fine, but I got all the sounds I need and my vibe and that's it. And with the development of Atmos, are you producing with Atmos in mind and, and spatialization and movement? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great world. So producing for Atmos is different than mixing produced records. Yeah, yeah. 
for Amos. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So I, yep. I was I was sitting with Jimmy when he was do, converting the Future Sex Love Sound album and the, the 2020 Vision album of Justin Timberlake for Atmos. And we were, it, it was it was awesome because we were able to find, I was we were able to hear the elements. Oh yeah, remember we added that? Yeah. So we were able to identify and make space for certain elements. But the, it wasn't produced for that. So it felt, the mix felt a bit disjointed, right? So it, it was really weird because it just felt a little disjointed. It's like, yeah, I can hear that cool sound, but that sound was put in that record so that it wasn't heard, but it was supported this other sound. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of stereo mixes aren't translating to Atmos as well as they maybe could do. So I'm wondering right. if, if, if someone like yourself is at the forefront of the next wave of Atmos, which has got to be, you know, producing for um, record, re yeah, yeah, recording yeah, yeah, and producing for Atmos with Atmos and the, the the new end game in mind. Yeah, yeah. So, using the Adobe Renderer for Ableton, what I like to do is once I get my initial vibe that we talked about, I've experimented with. Now, the thing is, I don't have the Atmos environment here in this room, so I'll, I'll have to do a binaural thing, which is it's hmm. kind of weird. Um, but I have produced just for experimentation like this, I'll start binaural, but then I'll head over to, uh, I'll take the hard or the laptop over to another studio and we'll test it out for the purpose of like, okay, I want to now add something that can do something here in the left and right direct that won't with a purpose. So it's been cool, but also it's tripped me up a couple of times because now I'm getting lost in just adding things for the crap, for the sake of yeah, freaking yeah. adding things. And I'm like, Oh <laughs> crap. I lost sight of what I need to do. And that's get a good freaking song done. So the balance is there. I'm still trying to figure it out. But what's been cool is I'll get a bedrock. So I'll have like a couple tracks. Okay. We got the song done. We got, I, I start making my Atmos. Here's, here's what I've been doing. Once I got my vocals tracked and we are like committing to these vocals lead, um, ad-libs, backing vocals, harmony vocals, like the main stacks, um, not ad-libs I can even use for, uh, for Amos. I then, okay, okay, that's cool. I've got all my need. Before I go into my ear candy production stuff, the ear candy production stuff is what I add to the Atmos. Th then I start, then I start strategizing like, okay, kick center, you know, snare a little bit there, uh, percussion loops, really cool to have a little bit floating above. But now, every now and then, I want to put this thing hard, the, the left center, right center, and then have it go back every every now and then to be some doing some really cool artistic, purposeful music dynamic stuff, if that yep. makes sense. Yep, totally. So at the ear candy stage is where I'm starting to get a good balance between writing a song for Atmos, producing a song for Atmos, and mixing it. And I, and I do think that's the future. I would definitely say that, you know, like even like now that I've got, I've got my Atmos set up, uh, now, it's interesting you were saying about feeling a disconnect because, for example, I was listening to a lot of Atmos mixes today and I listened, which must have been the Atmos remix of uh, Sophie Ellis Bexter's Murder on the Dance Floor because obviously Saltburn is like so popular on Netflix just now. And I was listening to it. I was listening to modern Atmos mixes and I was like, yeah, these modern Atmos mixes I think are incredible. I think a lot of these ones are so, so well done. But with Murder on the Dance Floor, um, he, whoever did it, they put the electric guitar, I think, either on the rear surround or the left surround, and it felt so disjointed. And it was like, I felt like there's like the mix there, but there's this random guitar here. 
And when I listen to well-done Atmos mixes, I don't ever really feel that. I feel that everything's cohesive. I think that's the best way to put it. Um, but yeah. when I've just been going through a few sessions and I was playing about with Studio Ones, like um, they've got a draft session in Atmos, and I could definitely see the potential of producing a record and having an, a, an artist in the room and then being able to say, oh, I'd love to kind of do this and do that and get creative with it. And that's where I could really see um, Atmos taking over where you can really get the artist's vision. Because as, as songwriters, again, we're all songwriters, we're all creatives. I don't ever really think in stereo when I write a song. I do have, I'd like, oh, be great to have this swimming above here and it'd be great to put this there and bring that in here and create depth and create movement. I think uh, what Atmos is amazing for is, is movement. But um, in, a question, because um, you've done a bit of work on Atmos. Center Channel, Seems to be a bit controversial just now, people I speak to. Some people are, are only putting uh, the vocals in the center channel. Some people are saying not to do that because it then could make the vocal easy to rip and you can get like the isolated vocal on its own. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. What's your thoughts on like the, the center channel? How do you use it? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, center, center channels, what I didn't, I didn't even think about like the whole ripping thing. Um, the thing is, though, with so many of these free AI stem makers, yeah, you could. Do they're going to get it anyways. Yeah, the RA, like, you know, the RA, the the Lala or Lala dot AI or whatever. I mean, there's so many of these websites that that are just ripping them off. So I think if someone's going through the pains of swiping a vocal away, it's not going to be great quality anyways. Yeah, but totally. Like if they're if they're going that route to do that. I wouldn't make the decision between putting like if I had to like I gotta leave the vocal in the center is gonna is the best decision for the mix then go for that mm -hmm. but don't ever be the fear of like well somebody's gonna swipe the vocal who cares man that's that's the best decision for the mix yeah so yeah yeah I think producing four Atmos is is gonna be key and just getting I'm still I'm still learning so much about it um I I, I need to do more of it because but. What's been stopping me is then m myself, I'm getting myself in the way of like, well, who the, who's going to freaking listen to it anyways in an Atmos? Nobody has an Atmos system. They're, they're going to go by their own or their stupid headsets anyways. So why am I even bothering? Right. But I don't know, man, the more, the more Apple's pushing Vision Pro, the more the yeah, VR yeah. sets, the more these environments are being created, the, the more of these normative environments of like, hey, spatial audio and this whole thing, like, yeah, that's... That's where the big... It's always tech, right? Yeah, Where, where's thing. tech headed? We follow. Yep. And I think that binaurally they're getting better because um, I don't... Ed's tried them and I don't think he's maybe got the same opinion as me, but um, I don't know if you've tried the Sony, uh, the MDR MV1s. They are the best I've ever heard um, when I've listened to the Sony 360 mixes and Atmos for getting the, the rear information. I think it does the best for kind of making things sound that they're just behind your ear. And I really, really do enjoy listening to Atmos and 360 mixes binaurally on them than I do stereo. And I've heard countless mixes binaurally that I've went, yeah, this sounds great. Yeah, the translation can be off. Is it going to ever really work? Because again, you can't really replicate the height speakers binaurally. That's probably the hardest thing to do. But yeah. I, I, I just don't see the harm in allowing you know the artist to have more creative freedom and to kind of go well no what instead of basically the way i see stereo now is it's all front 
You, it's all front, and really, what we class as depth in stereo is just it's less up front. Where with yeah. Atmos, it's front and back, and you could really put somebody in the middle of something. And when I listen to these Atmos records, and even when I'm listening on the Sony's binaurally, I'm just like, this is the way, the way it should be. I would be interested to see how guys like yourself, um, you know, producers with a lot with a good ear and a lot of experience, are able to manage um, this immersive field and just kind of maximize it to its full potential. So is it, is it something that you would say that you're going to, do you see yourself doing more of? Or is it just something that you're like, I'll keep it in my arsenal for if, you know, I need to kind of go down that avenue or if an artist comes and they need and they want an Atmos production? I'm, I'm looking to find more time to dig into it. And also juggling and running an online business like Beat Academy, I've kind of had one foot in on the, the hamster wheel yeah. there and, and so I want to now venture, and now that I'm, you know, going to spend more time in just the mentorship aspect of it, it's going to free up my time to invest in myself and getting really more hands in on like figuring out Atmos. Because we, I've done stuff with Jimmy, and and um, we've we done both the Atmos and the three, the Sony 360 for a couple of things. It was Sony. Sony made them do their whole catalog for the 360 uh, decoder um, thing. So. Yeah, like working that environment. I think that's it, bro. It's just so cool. And so there's actually a decoder for Ableton. I mean, you could use it for Ableton, the the, the Dolby one as well. But there's also a cool free version that somebody's created where you can do you you could do the Atmos split. And so writing for it. I mean, think of like how cool it would have been if Freddie Mercury had oh, access to Atmos. Like time. Bohemian Rhapsody, the way that Mercury had that in his head. Oh my god. Goodness it's, it's gracious. It's all right, because we have Muse, and they will embrace Atmos, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, they exactly. Will, yeah. So that's, that's so working in the ecosystem is going to be really cool. So I'm excited to do that, like just producing. And then, um, yeah. And and this, this, I think, comes from stepping out of the normative, the, the normative uh, narrative that all the, the big major record labels sometimes have. Right now, they're in this mode of like, let's convert the mix. Let's have an Atmos mix mm-hmm. of it. And they're not giving a lot of the sandbox for people to be like, now we're going to create complete immersive yep. audio, have fun, create stuff with it. Yeah, because it's cool. going to require them to do stuff cool. That's not chart topping. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, so it's going to have to come from just people stepping into this brave new world on their own, with their own vision, stepping in and be like, nah, I'm. I'm going to do something really cool with Atmos and I'm just going to, who cares if it goes to radio? Like you need to be in this environment to experience it. So that's, it's going to be a lot of those people doing it. I totally agree. I'm looking forward to Atmos gigs. Yeah. And I am wondering at what point the average punter at gigs who goes to an arena gig and gets everything in stereo, but without realizing it, they're used to listening to things with the space of binaural uh, and then they're disappointed at the live shows. Wondering uh, how good uh, an Atmos live show would be, and and I'm also wondering how they're going to manage that from a mix engineer point of view. As a former live sound engineer, I can't even imagine the mechanics of doing that in real time. <laughs> but why? Why would it? So li- unless you're it's all li- unless it's all tracked, you know, all the all the moving stuff, uh, all, all the oh, yeah, uh, the motion points are on track, which would be disappointing. So Atmos live gigs, I guess. Um, it would it, you. It would be multiple speaker stacks. Now at arena shows and festivals, you obviously have delays that are time aligned, so it'd just be a, a one huge Atmos room with yeah. 
delays going in all directions because the the speakers at the rear of the room would need to have delays for the front of the room, which would then you're just talking a, conco- a cacophony yeah, of sound and reflections, and I I, I, I can't imagine it working. And you I know, think when the people in the middle start vomiting on themselves, so it's, just, <laughs> it's just not working. Yeah, so, not to mention the, the the weight of the trussing and the cabling uh, and and the speak. No, it's just. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Okay, well, anyway, that was that conversation right, okay. short lived. <laughs> as we, we digress, as audio we engineers do. Now, now, Ivan, you're a very busy man, so I have one last question for you. Okay, yep. and we ask this. We try. We try and ask this for every guest we have on. A humbling moment that you have had, and um, probably the biggest humbling moment that you had in your career, but the one that had the most impact. One that maybe felt rubbish at the time, but actually was a a pivot point that caused you to. Do something different that led to success, maybe. It actually like criticism. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. It it time it ties in with um, right around the same time I was I started to work with Jimmy, and there there's one line that really put a lot of things in perspective to me. I'll never forget it. So we were I was trying to get tracks placed on like some upcoming big name artists projects, uh, whether it was like a Rihanna or something like that, and. I was just being so discouraged that nobody was really like, no heads were turning, nothing was going on. And um, and I was like, just so frustrated. And I remember Jimmy just going, it ain't that deep, bro. It's not your music. It's just, it's it's a lot more political than you think. And I was like, oh, because my identity was wrapped up in others validating the music I was creating. And so if I wasn't getting the approval or the acknowledgement that I thought the music should have, I just thought I just wasn't a good creative person. I just thought I was, you know, just schmuck. I I don't know. So my identity was really deeply rootedly, uh, rootedly. It was deeply rooted in in the validation from other people. And so until until it really just dawned on me, it's like, yeah, it really ain't that deep. All right, I'm gonna just make the music I want to make anyways. That's when actually a lot of the things start to generally fall into place. So ironically enough, when I stopped chasing, you know, Rihanna's looking for this kind of record, so make that kind of record. Okay, this is what they want. I'm going to do exactly what they want. And it never landed on anything. The moment I would leave that alone and focus on, well, this is the music that I really want to make then and work with the artists I really want to work with or the songwriters, that's the stuff that, hey, guess what, man? This guy loves that song. We want to cut it. Like, what? Like, so that was humbling because it allowed me to really view that, yeah, that my identity was not rooted in uh, other people's validation for the music I was making. It's interesting you say that because Miley Cyrus has just come off the back of winning her first Grammy saying exactly that. She'd written to chase things like that and please labels. And this was the first, not the first, but one of the key moments when she decided, you know, I'm just going to focus on my thing. Grammy, brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) That that is the, the very heart of what I was what I'm saying, and it's yeah, yeah. it was humbling because it's being it, honest to yourself, isn't it? And yeah. integrity. I think it's very easy with what we do being so connected to our ability and our success is connected to our ability, and we do take that personally. Certainly, I know with with mixing, Paul and I've struggled sometimes, maybe with some of the comments we've had on mixers, and you know, we, we want credit for the things that we've done well, but the very nature of the industry on all levels, not just posting mixed critiques on YouTube and getting comments is that people will only 
dwell on the one negative they've oh, heard. Oh man! In an in an otherwise fantastic yeah, mix, yeah, yeah. Do you know what cool. I mean? Don't even get me and, started in the world of YouTube. I mean, oh, <laughs> yeah. the five thousand awesome <laughs> comments, and then the one guy who's like, "I can hear you. that's not how it sounds." I'm like, "Oh," and I, and I I just have to like pause and think like, what does it take for a person to go out of their way and write stuff like that? All right, man. It's just they're they're on another level as well. So. I think it's okay people listening to a mix and finding the one or two things that they would do differently. And it may be that there's one or two things that are just wrong with the mix. And that's fine. And we are very aware that putting ourselves in this environment, we're going to attract those kind of comments. But what people overlook is the fact that we get dozens of comments on dozens of mixes, on dozens of videos, and it adds up. And I had a month off YouTube, I think, because I just I needed time off just from the, just from the, the, the comments. I needed to kind of grow before I could embrace it again. Yeah, so that's good, man. That's yeah. wisdom. It's tricky. But we love it, and it drives us to be better, I think, at the end of the day. Wow, I think that's been a fascinating episode again. Uh, Ivan, it's been so great getting a producer's perspective because I'm an advocate of getting as many different perspectives on our job as, as possible. And for me, that means being a musician and recording been a recording engineer and seeing how musicians work, been a recording engineer and mixing, mixing and seeing how the recording process works. And at some point, I will get my head around mastering to fully understand how my mixing work is affecting mastering. So it's been great to get your perspective. Thank you for your time on that. Good luck with your Atmos production. I'm excited to hear that. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to see what comes out of it. But yeah, super cool, man. Yeah. Thanks for, for letting me hang with you guys. No worries. It's been emotional from me. Thank you for listening, guys. Remember, you can get 30% off your first year subscription at DistroKid, who are sponsoring the podcast. It's been emotional. So again, everybody, if you've liked this podcast, and remember, leave as much kind of comments as you want. Give us as much engagement as we need. Share, do what you need to do, all the great things. My name's Paul Thurd, that's Ed Thorn. Ivan, thank you so much for your time, and we will see you again next week. Yeah, take care.